just five miles an hour. 17 southbound heavy from Los Gatos past the Lex. And 101 heavy northbound towards Gilroy and southbound towards Prunedale. It's 2.06, time for the Planet Watch radio show. We are, we are streaming live on Facebook Live. And Planet Watch begins now on KSEO with your hosts, Joe Jordan and Rachel Goodman. Stand by. You're listening to KSCO, serving Moss Landing, Marina, and Piscinas. You're listening to KSCO, serving Salinas, San Juan, Bautista, and Lockwood. Welcome to Planet Watch. I'm Joe Jordan with my co-host, well, not Rachel Goodman today. If you're looking on our, you know, video feed, uh, Facebook Live and or YouTube, you'll see um, another woman, though, uh, Caroline King, who's working the controls for us today. And she also did that successfully a couple weeks ago when Rachel wasn't here. And uh, we got uh, Tommy, you know, and Cade, the usual suspects, uh, working the show here. Uh, so this is a show about science and nature, climate and energy, technology and environment, truth and action, and the future of the world. Planet Watch Radio. So, uh, hey, uh, Caroline, why don't you introduce our stories? We've got three or four news stories and some commentary for you. Uh, yeah, so we have stories from us, the interns. Um, they're very interesting today. The first one is from Cade Pistelnik, uh, and it is an international one, which he tends to uh, choose to speak about. Cade, do you want to give us that story? Yes, and these facts are reported from the Economic Times. Reports state that by the year 2030, solar and wind will be the cheapest form of energy in all G20 countries, including India. In fact, according to Greenpeace Germany, renewable energy has been either cheaper or just as cheap as coal and nuclear power in about half of the G20 countries since 2015. Solar tariffs for the Badla Solar Power Project in Rajasthan sunk to a record low of RS 2.44 per unit, and wind tariffs also also fell to a new low of RS 3.46 per unit. With these statistics, Greenpeace campaigner Ashish Fernandez claims that any G20 country that is still investing in coal and nuclear power plants is wasting their money. In addition, the Finnish Lapinranta University of Technology calculated the electricity cost of all G20 countries in the years 2015 and 2030. Their study concluded that wind farms in parts of Europe, South America, China, Australia, and the United States already produce the cheapest form of electricity. The study also confirmed that by 2030, solar energy will even surpass wind power in terms of economic efficiency. With environmental protection now making moral as well as economic sense, coal and nuclear countries are, companies are running out of excuses for why their industries should be considered as the most beneficial choice. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, just a note for you, um, 
RS. I think that must be some Indian currency. And since he was referring to Rajasthan, which is a dry desert dominated province in the western part of India, that's probably you know, Rajasthan something or other RS. And uh, I got an add on to that, as I always do. I'll throw in my two bits on that. Uh, that's really good news about how solar and wind are getting to be cheaper than, you know, the big boys, the, the grown up, <laughs> dirty energy sources. And uh, this kind of reminds me and is well connected to the fact, another news story that I'll just sort of informally summarize that has just kind of come out recently is that, guess what? You know, there's this much ballyhooed Trump trying to pull America out of the Paris Climate Accords. It turns out that the nations of the world are well on course to exceeding the goals, the climate you know, protection goals, or at least decreasing climate havoc goals of the Paris Climate Accord, well on schedule. So, you know, my take on that is uh, Trump can just go diddle himself, which as far as I can tell, that's kind of all he's been doing, you know, sitting around drinking, tweeting, destroying, and playing golf on our behalf for what we pay him. So there you go. <laughs> We're going, to, we are rendering Mr. Trump and his ilk and their weird views irrelevant. Okay. <laughs> so on to well, Caroline looks like she has something yeah, she wants so to say. I actually um, did a, my stories about that, the um, how we are going to exceed the Paris um, climate. Tell us more. Tell us regardless more. <laughs> of all this. Yeah. So just a little more information on what Joe is saying, a couple of statistics and such. Um, because so many states and private institutions are deciding to pursue commitments to clean energy that reinforce um, kind of like what's outlined in the international climate deal, we're going to exceed uh, the um, carbon emission um, initiatives regardless of Trump deciding he doesn't want anything to do with it, which is completely ridiculous. The U.S. is predict uh, predicted to exceed the Paris commitment, Paris commitment of a 26 to 28 percent reduction of carbon emissions um, from the recorded level in 2005. This is going to be achieved by 2020, um, and in this year, renewables are going to be the cheapest form of new power generation across the globe, which is also what Cade was saying. Um, and this is pretty much just because of the basic nature of economics. This cheaper option is going to inevitably phase out coal and gas in the U.S. as well as countries like India. Um, we can see this happening already. The price of solar panels has fallen between or has fallen 50 percent between 2016 and 2017. And the costs associated with wind power can be as low as one-third to one-half of that of coal or natural gas-fired powered plants. The impact of renewable energy adoption also extends beyond the environment. It really benefits our economy. Renewables are generating more jobs than uh, their fossil fuel counterparts. And in the U.S., they even account for more jobs in tech giants like Google, Apple, and Facebook combined, which is really fascinating. You know, uh, we were going to have Tommy go next, but actually I'm realizing that my story, which I just now found and remembered, relates really well to those other two. Tommy's kind of is a segue into, well, I don't know, it's a segue into something else. But uh, so this is a big, hot story here, folks. I hadn't heard this, and I'm kind of about as on top of this stuff as a lot of people. The uh, Republican-dominated Congress has actually... Uh, well, passed or done something significant with an appropriations bill, or at least, uh, well, you know, you have your authorizations, which aren't actual funding appropriations yet. Those later get translated into appropriations. But anyway, they've done this thing where they have admitted, big time, that yes, climate change is a real and growing threat. 
to this country and the world, namely in the context of our military and all of its far-flung bases all over the world. Places like Diego Garcia, which is in the Indian Ocean, which is, you know, 10 feet above sea level. Huge resources, billions of dollars of resources devoted to that infrastructure there and the operation of it. And the military is seeing in a very clear-eyed way that, hey, this stuff is under threat in the near future, and we need to do something about it. And that's just one of many examples. So the military has actually owned up to this, and they got Congress to come along. <laughs> you probably just haven't heard about it. So you heard about it here first. And, um, I mean, this is good news that for whatever, you know, reason, even if it's in the desperate, pathetic attempt to continue the war economy in the world, at least somebody in power is sitting up and taking notice and realizing, hey, you know what, we really do need to deal with this stuff, <laughs> even if for kind of unfortunate reasons. Yeah, I hope that's not just an excuse for them to uh, add more military spending to the budget. Well, you know, if it's spending on uh, doing things that help them know more about what's going on with the climate and how to deal with it as models for what re the rest of civilization, you know, cities and, you know, uh, regions are going to have to do. Yeah. Okay, let the military plow that trail for us, <laughs> break that trail for us. Helping you know? all the people affected by climate change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this, uh, stay tuned and, and keep an eye on this. And, and I have to say that Citizens Climate Lobby, which we featured on our show back on April 30th, go get that one off the archives, uh, you know, we featured them. They, they have this agenda to get carbon, uh, a carbon price enacted in Congress. And those people who are now in the many thousands across the country and worldwide are doing a good job of actually getting this on Congress's radar screen. I am sure that their work has had a lot to do with this recent development. Cade wants to say something now. Oh, just a comment. Since we are on the topic of the the uh, climate change and military and how they intertwine. I remember um, this is also good with the veteran show coming up after us. Um, Bernie Sanders said this in a debate during the Democratic primaries that climate change is actually sparks ri the rise of terrorism because when temperatures increase and food becomes un unable to grow in areas, those areas become inhabitable and then groups of people, they fight over that land. So just another um, reason why climate change is all the most important and we have to reduce rising temperatures. Oh, yeah, and one more thing I, I forgot to say. That this is a gem. There's this woman and somebody or other. I don't have it in my head here. If you want, get a hold of us. But she is a retired admiral or something comparable. And uh, there is a huge Navy presence in Norfolk, Virginia, back kind of near where I used to go down to Virginia Beach always. And uh, they have a tremendous base. I think it's the world's largest naval base there with all kinds of ships and things. And the sea is threatening them right now. And she said something to the effect of, you know what, we're going to have to build a wall that's really needed <laughs> to protect those resources. Yeah. That was a great line. Yeah, seawalls. So. <laughs> yes, a seawall. <laughs> so, uh, you know, those are the kind of desperate measures uh, to which we are going to have to resort, the sort of thing that is already going on in Miami now, where they're having to pump the streets many times a year at the cost of just millions of dollars because of the rising tides and the rising sea level. So any of you out there who are still doubters in anthropogenic climate change, namely human-caused climate havoc, uh, take note. By the way, there is a great book on what uh, Kate and I were just mentioning about. It's, I mean, I say great. It's a very sad situation, but it's a well-written, very important book called Climate Wars. 
I forget the author's name, but just look it up. It's, uh, it was written a few years ago, but it is very relevant. Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! has had him on several times, not recently, I don't think, but Climate Wars. It's about, you know, refugee crises and all kinds of things and fighting over resources and all this havoc that's going to result because of climate. And, you know, you may still have doubts. You may finally be admitting that, yes, it really is changing in ways that aren't pretty, but no, humans don't have anything to do with it, and no, we can't have anything to do with fixing it. Um, well, just, we'll talk about that later, okay? <laughs> By the way, inviting your input, folks, to this program, we always want to announce early and often, you can email us your questions. Sooner or later, we will take calls, okay? But uh, you can email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Tommy's walk, watching his uh, laptop there like a hawk to screen for your incoming questions, comments, insults, whatever you have for us today. <laughs> RadioPlanetWatch at gmail.com. And I have to say, we miss our uh, wonderful, uh, my co-host, Rachel Goodman. Uh, she's off uh, doing music again. She's a wonderful, talented musician. She's at the Sweets Mill Music uh, Camp up in the foothills of the mountains in California and I hope she's having great fun and making great music as she always does. One of these days, we will prevail upon her to play some music for us on this show. <laughs> she plays great fiddle and guitar, sings gorgeous voice. She's a major researcher into the early Americana music of the, the women, you know, old-timey music, folk music from America's early days, and uh, it'll be great for her to grace us with some of that. <laughs> so, okay, we've, we're burning a lot of time here, but hey, we got a couple of relatively short uh, interviews for you, and anybody else want to come well, in with something here? I think Tommy has Oh, Tommy has a story! <laughs> I do yes, have a story. Yes. Yeah, it's something you probably have heard something about. Uh, one of the largest icebergs ever recorded just broke off from the Larsen Sea Ice Shelf the third fracture on the Antarctic Peninsula in just over two decades. The rift in the Larsen Sea ice shelf, which broke away Wednesday, was captured by the European Space Agency's Sentinel-1 satellites, which are capable of capturing images despite the heavy cloud cover and current winter period of polar darkness. Uh, also this week, the 20th annual Bryce Space and Technology Industry report found the global satellite industry continued to grow generating $260 billion last year, a 2% increase from 2015. While satellite services such as television, radio, and broadband remain the primary revenue sector, uh, generating $127 billion collectively, satellites used for Earth imagery or observation accounted for 11% of the sector's growth. Um, Nearly 1,500 operating spacecraft circled the planet at the end of last year, including some 500 small observation and remote sensing satellites now orbiting and gathering data. 126 satellites were launched worldwide last year, including 55 shoebox-sized spacecraft known as CubeSats. <laughs> that is nearly double the amount of CubeSats launched in 2015. And during the first half of this year, we have already surpassed last year's small satellite flight rate. The report found at least 33 satellite launchers currently in development worldwide, which is pretty exciting, but also interesting to see how much stuff we're launching up into space all at once. Yeah. This reminds me, I have a good friend who works at NASA, the Ames Research Center over the hill from here in the Silicon Valley. He's an expert on and is heavily involved with these CubeSats. You know, these are satellites that are, well, they're way smaller than a bread box. In fact, they're maybe about the size of a Rubik's Cube. We yeah, could get him on this show. I just realized we should get him on this show to talk about that. And uh, I have to tell you a story. I don't believe I've said this on the show before, but even if I have, it's worth repeating. <laughs> I was talking with some of the top people at NASA involved in uh, 
the satellite program, which gives us all our information on what's going on with the planet, you know, Planet Watch. And this guy told a honest-to-God story. He was talking to uh, a couple of Congress people, as he often does. I think he's retired now. Mike King, back at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in uh, the Washington, D.C. area. And he said that... Uh, one of the congressmen was arguing that we need to cut these satellite programs, and he said, why do we need these satellites anyway? You can just watch the Weather Channel. <laughs> hey, you know, folks, uh, I mean, if you don't get it, uh, my drift here, uh, where does the Weather Channel get the information that they display? <laughs> you know, you cannot make this stuff up. These are the people who are in control. I call this stupid and in control. I've been using this phrase ever since the days of Ronald Reagan, and unfortunately, we, we got to get, you know, smart and in control. Smart, wise, virtuous, kind, and in control. Yeah. Okay. Looking for more information, not getting, taking it away. <laughs> not burning books. Yeah. Burning satellites. <laughs> burning money. Okay. So, well, our, I think Caroline is ready to, and our wonderful engineer back there, Jason, we're ready to run our long interview, but let me introduce it. Um, those of you in this area, there was a recent issue came out July 5th of the Good Times Rag, and we had a cover article on there which featured a couple of our heroes from past shows. Don Harris, world expert guru on micro hydropower and just hydropower and renewable energy sources all over the world. And Bob Staten, we were at his lovely all-solar off-grid home. Uh, he's in that article, and uh, a guy who's going to be on one of our future shows here, Chris Bly, B-L-E-Y, who's an expert on both the big wind industry and the big solar industry. <laughs> and uh, all of us, it was an article called Braving the Elements. It was about renewable energy in the future. Well, anyway, Bob Staten's home, um, he uh, agreed to have us come up and do a tour of his place, and Rachel came up with her mic and equipment and got audio, and then he, she has since then, uh, since she was going to be gone this week, she's woven it together into a nice pre-recorded interview about Bob is walking us around showing us all kinds of stuff about the solar at his home. So uh, after the interview plays, I'll, I'll tell you some more about what we hear in there, but uh, are we ready to roll that? It's about 20-some-odd minutes long. Uh, yeah, uh, let's hear it. Okay, thanks. All right, so I'm here with Bob Staten. Hi. Hello. Tell us what we're seeing, because this is radio and no one can see this. Well, we're walking on our property where we have installed solar panels, and um, we've been living here for 20 years off the grid, and we started off um, not necessarily with the idea of living off the grid. We um, bought the property just after PG&E and uh, California deregulated energy. So this little percola here with the, uh, is this Tibetan Perflex? Oh, these? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Actually, there we can keep entrance. the deer out. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, PG&E, uh, when we contacted PG&E to start the construction process for our house, um, they informed us that uh, due to energy deregulation, they could no longer bring the power up to the building site. So we figured out it would probably cost between fifteen dollars and $20,000 to bring in the power because of the difficulty of the terrain and cutting down a swath of trees and all kinds of things. So we ended up... Um, uh, balking at that idea of paying that much money just for the privilege of getting a PG&E bill. So we looked into um, photovoltaics and at the time they were available and um, we basically installed them. And when we were contracting the, the county, uh, there were two things that they wanted to make sure we did. That 
it was all the equipment was UL listed, and they were installed by a licensed electrician, and then um, it sailed through the planning process. What year was that? That was 1997. So uh, we just passed our 20-year uh, anniversary of turning the system on and living off the grid. Which is the original? We started um, with the panels on the garage. Actually, the first set, the, the lower four on the garage, mm -hmm. um, were our original set. And Joe helped install those. A little um, kind of a barn raising that we did with people because those are those are actually really big panels. Those are three foot by six foot panels. They're huge. And they weigh a hundred pounds each. Um, so you couldn't just like throw them up there. We actually had to have four people carry each one up there and it had to build some scaffolding for able to walk on the tile. But it worked pretty well. We got them up there and um, got them working on April 24th, 1997. And we've been living off the grid since then. Did you add the next row? And then about four years later, we added the top row. And then about five years later, we had this ground mount when I acquired a used electric car. Um, I bought off a woman I met in San Francisco a 1980 Rabbit that had been converted to all electric. And so she was selling it because she had bought another electric car and you wanted to get rid of that one. So I bought it and that was my first electric car and it was a learning experience to say the least. And her name is? Um, um, Sherry, Sherry Beauchart. Beauchart. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. She wrote the uh, hybrid book. Exactly. Book. Yeah. Exactly. How did you know that? <laughs> I know Sherry. Okay. Good. <laughs> yeah. She's been on our show. Before. I bought her her rabbit. Um, so anyway, um, then uh, these panels over here were the last that we added just about two years ago, um, and that was because we were expanding into other things. Um, we bought, traded in the um, electric car, and our Honda Civic for a plug-in hybrid. So we could go from a gas car and an electric car to a single car, which was both gas and electric. And that's worked out pretty well, except for the fact that the Prius plug-in is only about 11 or 12 miles of all electric. So we wish that was more, but... Um, and the new ones are. The new ones are. The new ones are about twice that. So that may require an upgrade pretty soon, but... So um, this panel, it, you have a kind of an A-B comparison between the early models of what solar used to be and the, what, the, what it is now. Um, was it cheaper and lighter? And what was the difference once, you know, you've got a 20, 30 year span or something here? Yeah, the, the difference was substantially cheaper with the last set of panels. Um, when we bought the first four, um, they were a pretty good price because those were um, large panels designed for utilities. And so they were mass produced. And when I went back three or four years later to buy more, I thought, well, they'll be cheaper. They weren't cheaper. They actually had gone up slightly because the demand had gone up, which I thought was really exciting and uh, good news that people were buying them, but unfortunately it meant that I had to pay a little more for my second set to buy surprise. Um, the latest set were so inexpensive that I just um, decided to get it much bigger and allow room for more expansion and um, actual little bit of luxury, which I will show you when we get up to the top. So Sounds very good. Well, let's not stand too much out in the main heat so nobody gets heat stroke on this hot California day. With the cute little... Oh, that. Uh, we, we got a little um, pop-up trailer. And that's the solar array that I carry with the trailer to keep the trailer battery charged. And right now, it's, it's just topping it off. Huh? How many watts? Uh, 200. 200? Yeah. Those are both 100-watt panels. That's Those are pretty efficient panels. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Beats a well, loud generator. anyway. Well, <laughs> I don't know if I've actually measured that how much, much. How much is all your generation now? Uh, I've totaled almost 8 kilowatts total. So, um, and these, this array over here actually took us from four to eight. 
that's so we doubled when we when we did that. Now you have something interesting here. Your original set, I assume, is on the south, facing almost pure Actually south. Not. They're not. Not. Okay. Yes. See, uh, when we designed the garage, we had laid it out to be south-facing roof. Uh -huh. When they actually um, did the bulldozer work and put the foundation in, we discovered they didn't follow the plan. <laughs> <laughs> and so the garage is facing west of south. Okay. So, so these panels are ours facing south. Okay. And for these, we just decided to go with, um, similar to the ones on the roof, mm -hmm. um, mainly because in around here we have a lot of morning fog. So orienting more toward the west is okay because it allows us to um, get more of the afternoon sun. So, and it's much just easier to build it that way. This was a difficult installation because they're trying to get the angle right. But. And what was the total cost of the new array, just so people can get a handle on, you know, modern day costs? And if they're thinking about doing this for their own house, you know, what are you looking at as far as an investment? If you want your to be truly off-grid and you want to have all the luxuries most people have in a regular modern home, you know, I, I don't know what you have in there, so we'll go in there and ask you that later. But just in general, this looks like you're... Houses decent size. So, what did it cost you um, total if you were to add up the whole shebang? If you don't I mind, I haven't added it all up. So I'd have to sit down and figure that out because they came in different stages. Um, and well, how about just the latest one? Uh, okay, the latest one I think was about two two fifty a watt, um, and we added about four kilowatts. So that's about it was about ten thousand dollars for the installation for that much, and four kilowatts would meet a lot of people's needs. Off-grid's a little harder um, because you have to add batteries and um, for storage, and you have to have a generator for backup. And so for people who are connected to the grid, I don't recommend that you go off-grid. Um, it's not worth the trouble to maintain the batteries in the generator when you can use PG&E as your storage system through net metering. But so, And you can avoid the expense and all the maintenance required for batteries in a generator. The downside of being on-grid is when the grid goes down off or we uh, have a power line failure with the uh, storms that we frequently have here in the mountains so i can yeah. see there is benefit but you say there is quite a bit of cost so it depends on your confidence in the future of the right. grid right right and and i would say like i said if you're away from the power lines um doing off-grid is certainly feasible and and desirable and very possible and works very well so and your well is powered by the solar Yes, um, that was, the well is one of our biggest energy users when we um, run that more in the summertime because we have to water everything because it doesn't rain around here and it gets hot like today. Um, we have to pump more waters and what we do is we pump it up to a, a tank um, about 300 feet in elevation above, the, of, above this place. So once it gets up to the tank, um, it comes down as gravity feed and we don't have to have a pressure. Uh, I don't know if you heard, but um, France has um, declared they're in by 2040 they're going to uh, disallow gasoline cars to be sold. Cool. <laughs> and we'll then, see if that really comes about. And then, we and then Volvo just announced yeah. that they're going to stop making um, real soon um, pure gas cars. They'll be doing hybrids. To show you my solar-powered garage door opener. Which is, of course, just an ordinary electric garage door opener, but it happens to be solar-powered because everything around here is solar-powered. This is our power center in the garage. Um, we have two inverters that convert the DC power into AC, to, for, so we can run all our normal appliances and, and computers. Um, we have several different charge controllers, which manage the electricity coming out of the panels and distribute that to the batteries or to the inverters for use in the house. 
Um, the generator con connects in here and the batteries connect in here. So this basically acts as the load center for everything that's connected to our, uh, it's like our utility setup for our house and our property. We're actually going to be upgrading um, the inverters um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that eventually we may want to either connect to the grid or sell the house and allow it to be connected to the grid. And the inverters that we currently have are not suitable. They're, they're too old to um, allow the utility company to connect directly. So we'll be upgrading the inverters and give us a little more power. And just I'm not sure if Bob said it, but the inverter is the device that converts the DC direct current that comes from the photovoltaic or solar electric array into the AC alternating current that you're home circuits typically use. And it raises an interesting question, which is a lot of people who've started early, like you did with solar, um, are finding, you know, that the new technology has come quite a ways and they have to either reinvest or just upgrade. Sounds like what you've done. Yeah, that's going to be happening to us. Um, and it's because solar is still learning and that's a good thing because um, things are getting better, cheaper, and um, provide more functions and we're on an upward learning curve with solar. Speaking of hot water. Yes. Um, the next thing I want to show you is our solar water heating system. Uh, these panels over here uh, circulate water through copper tubes and they have copper fins attached to them, painted black and under glass so that the sunlight comes through the glass, heats up the fins and heats up the water. And the water, once it gets warmed up, rises through natural circulation. This is a thermosiphon system. So the uh, hot water rises from the collectors goes flows up to the house which is above the collectors and the cold water circulates back down and we get a circulation loop that proceeds automatically and um, when the sun goes down that loop just stops so it there's no pumps there's no controllers it's all completely passive but it works very well and that's been operating for about 15 years so does that mean you have to just uh, excuse me does that mean you only can take a shower during the day no uh, um, this water circulates up to a hundred gallon tank so we can store it as we need to. And then on days where it's cloudy um, and in the wintertime, that tank feeds into a demand water heater. So that if the water is not hot enough, then demand water heater brings it up to the final temperature. So we're never without hot water. So proceeding up to the house, um, our home, in order to minimize energy use, we designed it as a passive solar home. So that means it uh, doesn't have active collectors and pumps, but it, it's designed to have south-facing windows um, so that in the northern hemisphere, the low winter sun can pass through the windows into the house and warm the house. Um, it has some thermal mass in the form of, we built the lower floor out of concrete block. And the um, concrete block is insulated on the outside so it doesn't lose heat, but it's warmed up by the sun coming in during the winter time. That concrete block actually is also very effective in the summertime for cooling, because what we do is like last night, we opened up all the windows when it was cool and circulated cool air through the house, cooled off the concrete block, and uh, then we shut down the windows in the morning and allow it to coast through the day. It's cool, and I'll demonstrate that. Oh, and this yes. solar here is, looks like we could get cooked or tanned very quickly if we got too close to it. Uh, we also have a solar oven. I like to do all things solar. Um, I have a lot of different 
solar cooking apparatuses. Um, the solar oven is one of them that does direct solar. It's basically an insulated box with a glass cover and reflectors that um, when you put it, something inside and seal it up, it heats up from the sun and current temperature is about 300 degrees. Um, I had it up to 350 earlier when I was baking the bread. You made bread in it. So yes, how long, you could cook it for an hour like you do normal loaf of bread? Yeah, it took about an hour. Um, so um, I think I did an extra five minutes just to make sure the outside crust was good. So. Oh, I hope we can look at it. If oh, not, you'll have a taste if not, it, taste it. <laughs> now we're talking. Right. How exciting. I've been wanting to make one of those, and that looks so low-tech. Just uh, just for the people who can't see, it's a black box with um, some reflective mirrors around it like a satellite dish, and in the center is a glass cover, and that's where you put the food under the glass cover. Right. So this is, uh, you can see the house, this is the south side of the house, you can see it has a lot of glass. Um, during the winter time, um, that uh, grapevine over the patio loses all of its leaves and allows the sun to come in. With our electricity actually, I don't have an actual meter, um, electric meter the way most people do because I'm not connected to the utility company. Um, so uh, I don't know how much electricity um, we actually use. I know that we have designed everything to be as efficient as possible so that we minimize our use of electricity so that our solar goes as far as possible. And it meets your needs. So far, so good. Is it ever, have you ever exceeded the need that, or the need exceeded the amount of electricity solar is generating for you? Well, certainly. There are times in the, in the winter where we don't get enough sun and our batteries become depleted, but that's why we have a generator backup. And we run that on gasoline. And that lately, with the latest set of collectors, um, I only had to run that about five or six times this last winter. Well, uh, yeah, when we first um, built the house, we had just one set of collectors and we had some used batteries, which we claimed from a, an old telecom um, backup system. And they look like big, beefy batteries. And uh, we put them in and uh, we connected them. But it, it turns out when I finally looked into these batteries, they actually weren't meant for deep discharge. And so... We didn't, we put the batteries down in the garage and we didn't know um, what the state of the charge of the batteries was because I didn't have any meters up at the house. So um, these batteries, as they started aging fairly quickly as we were using them, started to not be as reliable. And so we would be basically sitting in our living room at night and uh, without warning, everything would go out. Because <laughs> just like bang, there's no warning, no, no brown out before it goes like it does with the utility company. It just went, everything shuts down because the inverters are set up so that when the battery voltage gets below a certain amount, um, it shuts off the inverter to protect the batteries. But, and of course, we would just be plunged into darkness and have to go down and fire up the generator to get them charged up again. Nothing like being in the dark to motivate you to go do something. Exactly. And another story you should tell, Bob, is your solar-powered grandfather clock here. Tell us how old it is also. Yeah, um, my, my, I have a tall grandfather clock. Um, it's built in 1820, um, and basically from the colonial times almost. This is the kind of clock that was present in all home, like Thomas Jefferson had a clock like this. In fact, Thomas Jefferson was still alive when this clock was built. Um, he died in 1825, I think. So. We, we inherited it. Yeah, I inherited this clock from my father. Um, it's solar powered because it's, it's wound by me, and I am powered by the sun through the food that I eat, which is, of course, grown solar energy. So um, I have to wind it once a week by turning the crank, which lifts weights inside the tall case, and during the week, the weights descend and power the clock. So that clock 
has been running for close to 200 years now um, based on solar power. Okay, I'm continuing my conversation with Bob Staten, and um, it brought up a couple questions for me, our tour. And one of them is, you know, the future of this technology as a widely adoptable. Even here in California, I don't know what the percentage is of people using solar, but it seems like we have a lot more to go before we've maxed out the number of households who could go 100% like you have. Yeah, I, there's a tremendous room for growth in solar, obviously. Um, and because, uh, particularly photovoltaics, is the one thing that everyone can do practically if they have a rooftop or ground area that is exposed to the sun. Um, because it's a simple technology, it has no moving parts. Um, you just install it and it starts generating electricity and it lasts for 20 or 30 years. Our oldest collectors are 20 years old and they're still going strong and I expect them to last at least another 10 or 20 years. So um, it's great because once you put the solar in, basically you are almost permanently eliminating a source of carbon output because all the energy that's generated from those panels is displacing fossil fuels that would have to be generated to uh, instead. So. Um, as we do more and more solar, um, each one of those adds to the installed base of solar. And so it's a cumulative process. And it keeps accumulating. And gradually, I hope to see uh, it accumulates so much that fossil fuels will be phased out. Um, California is a great place for it, but so are a lot of other states. In fact, um, people are installing it in Seattle, which people think of as not possible to do solar in Seattle, but they do. And you just need more collectors and realize you may need a little more energy storage, but it definitely works. And there's no reason why it couldn't supply, in the long run, all of our energy needs, combined with other things like hydro and wind and, of course, some sort of energy storage to even out the supply. So it has tremendous growth potential. And like I said, because anyone can do it, schools, uh, government can do it on their buildings, uh, commercial installations. Commercial buildings have a lot of flat roofs. Um, I know that uh, even Walmart is installing solar panels on the roofs of their giant stores. So um, everyone's getting into it because not only is it a good thing to do for the planet, it's turning out now to be a good investment because the prices have come down sufficiently so that it is competitive. And you just have to be willing to put up the money up front and harvest the solar energy over a number of years to pay it back. And if you're willing to do that, then you can, um, just, like I said, displace a permanent source of fossil fuels. Seems like the initial upfront cost is a big barrier for most homeowners. Is there, these incentives seem to be what's the difference between doing and not doing for a lot of people. Are those things that other states are now adopting, that little extra leg of getting ahead of it with some rebates or other help? Well, most states have some sort of solar program in place. Um, I'm from Indiana, and even Indiana, which isn't known for its um, uh, liberal policies, um, has um, an excellent solar uh, incentive program. They have a, um, a buyback program that allows investors to go in and install large size um, systems. For example, the city of Indianapolis um, airport has a lot of land around it, and the private entrepreneurs got together with the airport and basically installed a large array of solar panels to generate electricity using the land at the airport. They pay some of the money to the airport, so the airport has an income stream, and they harvest some of it as profits. So um, it worked out really well just as an investment. 
His, his brother actually was involved in organizing that entire thing. <laughs> Staten. His, yeah. his name is Mike Staten. What a family you are. He must have had some good upbringing. Yes. Um, any final thoughts on where we stand with solar and in specific, um, given pulling out of the climate accord? Are we just going to keep doing it because it's the right thing and economical? Or is this going to hamper things, given our federal government right now seems to be heading in the opposite direction toward fossil fuels? I don't think the current government's going to hinder it very much. Um, it has so much momentum right now. Businesses are doing it. Uh, local governments are doing it. State governments are doing it. And most of them are just shaking their heads wondering, why are you trying to slow this down? Because this is the future. And there's no reason why the federal government can't be supporting it. Pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement will probably have not much effect. Um, it had fairly weak provisions to begin with. Um, it was pretty much voluntary with no enforcement mechanism, and they're not going to even review whether it's working or not for five years. So um, I don't hold a lot of hope for the Paris Climate Agreement to have a big effect, but I do see countries taking action anyway. And despite the things that this government might be doing, um, they're not going to stop it. It's got an, enough momentum of its own. Well, that's a good hopeful note to end on. Thank you so much for spending the time and for the delicious homemade bread in a solar oven. That's really like a perk I hadn't expected of this job. <laughs> Given how much we get paid, maybe it's like what we expect. <laughs> we get paid in bread. That's not bad. No, I'm happy to host you. Thank you. Since oh. solar energy... Is that the ads? No, no, no. Oh, so I guess they were starting. Hey, Jason, we're going to save the ads for just another couple minutes, okay? Because I wanted to say a few things uh, in, you know, cool. follow up on that article. Uh, so that was Bob Staten, but I, did, I forgot to mention the other voices you heard. His wife, Mary Salas, had a little cameo in there talking about Bob's brother who uh, had organized that big airport solar project in Indiana. And um, then the other one was on the air with us last week, Jack Martin from North Carolina. I took him up there. He's this expert on all things solar electric, including large you know, marine vessels, research vessels, boats, ships, ferries. And uh, who else? Well, I chimed in a couple of times, and, uh, and Bob. So anyway, Bob um, is a... Uh, he used to teach the program at Cabrillo College in renewable energy, which I later took over when he got busy with other things. And he has written this wonderful book. I've mentioned it before, but hey, it bears repeating. Power Shift from Fossil Energy to Dynamic Solar Power. Oh, well, we have to take the break, but more soon. <laughs> okay. Here I'm Matt Thompson, Santa Cruz resident and project manager for Day One Solar. I find Santa Cruz to be such a unique place. You have community-minded residents that really appreciate the beauty that surrounds us. But with that comes a responsibility to protect our natural resources for generations to come. At Day One Solar, we offer clean energy systems that will save you money while you help save our planet. Solar Energy Now. Day One Solar. We're headed for the warmest weather of the year. I'm Charles Friedman. Before you turn on that air conditioner up to max, give a thought to the safety of all the electrical circuits that keep you cool. Best way to check on the safety of your electrical circuits is with the help of Chris Jensen and the staff at JM Electric. Chris 
What should we be watching out for? Thanks, Charles. It is really important to be mindful of the electrical circuits that power air conditioners. Any electrical leak from these circuits is a real fire danger. You may not be able to see the electricity leaking from the circuits behind your walls, but JM Electric's state-of-the-art testing equipment can find them. And JM Electric is happy to help folks out with a free home assessment to see if the current safe testing service is right for your home. Give us a call at 422-7819. Go straight to jmelectric.com and take the home electric safety test. After you answer 12 yes or no questions, you'll have a good idea about how safe to feel. If you don't feel safe, call JM Electric and ask for a free current safe home assessment. That's JM Electric at 422-7819. You'll sleep well at night. Uh, from this show that uh, is highlighting solar. Speaking of high light, at least in the northern hemisphere, the sun's pretty high in the sky this time of day, this time of year. Well, it depends on what time zone you're in. We are heard by people in countries all over the world. Uh, One thing, interesting little note there, uh, we talked about how that interview was done on a fairly hot day. We have this marine inversion around here in Santa Cruz where because of the cold Pacific Ocean and sometimes fog, it's actually... Unlike the usual situation where it gets colder with altitude, here, at least on the short range, it gets warmer with altitude. You get out of the fog and the marine layer, then you get into warmer. And then if you go way on up, yeah, then it gets colder again. But anyway, uh, we were talking about solar. A lot of people have the misconception that solar photovoltaics, solar electric panels and modules, perform better in high heat. No, 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 no. You want high sun, but you want high desert where you get lots of sun and it's cool. Those photovoltaics, interesting thing about the technology, they actually perform much better in cooler, even cold temperatures. The ideal day is a cold winter day in the high desert where, you know, you're above a lot of the atmosphere in the, like eight, 9,000 feet. You're above a third of the atmosphere. So the air, even though it's invisible, it filters out significant amounts of the radiant energy that <laughs> power those miracle technology of the future, solar cells. Uh, other thing I was going to say about Bob, you have to know about this. He is a secret radical. Way back in the day in the 70s, he and a few other people doctored billboards in this area. You know, back when billboards were allowed to put ads in the visual landscape all around Santa Cruz. And billboards for commercial, kind of sometimes sleazy commercial products, they would get up in the night and go out and they'd have a couple of watch people watching for the cops to make sure they didn't catch them. And they did this ingenious thing where they doctored those ads into political statements with really cool slogans, you know, like U.S. out of El Salvador would would be what it became of something else, you know, for tequila or something, you know. (laughs) Anyway, I'm telling you a website where you can look at all this as well as his whole story, how he did it, which was totally ingenious. Uh, It's sagehill.net, that's S-A-G-E-H-I-L-L dot net slash T-I-A for truth in advertising. Check that out for a good time. Um, By the way, Eugene Beer was on this show last week uh, along with jack martin he is in the air right now returning to columbus ohio where he plays our show on the green radio network and he emailed in this is a first for our show he emailed in a question from four uh, you know 30 some odd thousand feet at the time he was above south lake tahoe i would estimate by now he's probably over you know eastern nevada western utah 
But uh, the question was, well, he, he said he observed Tahoe, the Lake Tahoe, and it was very full. And could I comment on that? And, you know, some of you may seen, have seen stuff about this on the TV news. It's really full because of all the snow melt from all the tremendous rain and snow that happened up in the mountains this year. But actually, um, Gene's, uh, Eugene's uh, lady friend back in Columbus, his son is actually, well, is in the studio with us here, and he, he wanted me to plug. He's an artist. He's hoping to move here to do electronic music, art, and other art. He did a project in L.A. called Fountain. It's a project documenting the L.A. water sources and a nod to Marcel Duchamp's 1917 piece called Fountain. It contains 80 minutes of video and 350-plus images. And... Uh, uh, the, this fellow Marshall Marshall Rendina, and he's got a website Marshall M A R S H A L L R E N D I N A MarshallRendina.com. You can get this there, and um, he said that in early 2017, when he did this work, none of the reservoirs uh, he photographed in the L.A. basin were full, and in fact, many were completely empty. But now, in kind of a segue from our Lake Tahoe airborne report from Eugene Beer, uh, a lot of the reservoirs in L.A. probably have quite a bit more water. Um, let's see. So, okay, we got about five more minutes of oddball stuff here. Any other uh, news from the Internet uh, email front there, Tommy? Uh, okay, well, just keep checking. Um, Another thing I want to say about photovoltaics is that, uh, you know, everybody thinks Einstein is famous for relativity theory. You know, how uh, things that one person thinks are simultaneous are not simultaneous to a person who's traveling by at, you know, four-fifths of the speed of light. Or, or how, you know, massive objects like the sun actually bend light, which is true. And he, well, he is famous for that, but guess what he got his Nobel Prize for? He didn't get that for relativity or black holes or cosmology or any of that. He got it for the photoelectric effect. He didn't discover it, but he interpreted it, and it was one of the seminal findings in all of physics that showed us that nature and light is quantized. It comes in tiny parcels called photons. Newton, a long time ago, back when everybody thought light was waves, and it does indeed act like waves, but Newton uh, thought that maybe light was in particles. He called them corpuscles. Corpuscles. <laughs> but now, if you're a Star Trek fan, you hear about photon torpedoes. Well, anyway, light comes in little quanta. Quanta. It's quanta. It's called photons. Einstein kind of pretty much on the backs of giants like Max Planck in Germany came up with the theory of the quantization of light. And that was because, for instance, you shine blue light, which is higher energy photons, on a photovoltaic cell and you excite electrons. You make electricity flow. But you shine red light, same total amount of energy, total rate of energy flow, but lower energy actual photons, red photons, you don't get the electrons to flow. You have to have light in a certain wavelength range to excite the electron flows. And that's the miracle of photovoltaics now, which is going to become fast, the dominant source of energy on the planet, because we get 10,000 times what we need all the time from the sun worldwide. And uh, so we're going to harvest that cleanly, unlimitedly, <laughs> homegrownly and democratically distributedly. And uh, so anyway, there's just a little note on the science and Einstein and his connection to the modern uh, miracle technology of the present and the future, especially. Um, what else now? Oh, Eugene Beer, I forgot to mention last week. He was in here. Uh, you may have heard him uh, get the show from last week if you didn't hear it. I didn't say that in Columbus, Ohio, he is known as the piano peddler. <laughs> he pedals around on a bicycle with an electric piano keyboard 
uh, mounted to his keyboard, and it's all solar powered, by the way, the electricity for his electric piano keyboard. And he plays for, you know, he'll set up shop outside the Ohio State Stadium, which, you know, can seat, you know, way over 100,000 people for the big Ohio State football games. He'll be whomping away that electric piano. He's a very, very talented musician. And uh, he's playing that thing, solar powered piano. And, uh, you know, his website is something like Piano Peddler, like P E D D L E R. And that means like he's selling pianos, you know, peddling piano. I'm trying to convince him to change the spelling to pedal or like you know, pedaling a bicycle, P-E-D-A-L-E-R. But anyway, that's him. So, uh, okay, well, I was just going to say, all right, uh, last week we had a full moon, which means that this week, what's the phase of the moon? When does it come up? Full moon always comes up at sunset. It's a week later now. It's going to be last quarter. And you say, well, you look at the moon, and, well, it doesn't look like a quarter moon. It looks like a half moon, right? But quarter is actually the correct term. Why? Because we're only seeing half of the moon facing us. The other half of the moon is facing away from us. <laughs> so if we see half of the half of the moon that's facing us, what is that? <laughs> half of a half is a quarter. And this is the third quarter moon tonight. And by the way, have you ever wondered why the moon looks white? When Have you ever seen a moon rock, like in a museum or like the Smithsonian back in D.C. or whatever? All those moon rocks are dark gray. They're dark gray. And it's not just because they come from those gray areas on the moon that look like the bunny in the moon or the man in the moon. All the rocks all over the moon are dark gray, some darker gray than others. So how can the moon be white? Interesting question. You want the answer or should I save it till next week? <laughs> uh, we're getting a little bit close to when we have to roll the music again. I'll just tell you, okay? You ready for this? All right. Look, you're looking at the utter blackness of space at night. There's nothing else up there except the stars and this moon. No matter how black or gray that moon is, compared to the utter blackness of space, it looks bright, bright <laughs> white. So, you know, and you could say, well, it's, it's not any particular color. It doesn't look blue, doesn't look red, doesn't look yellow, doesn't look green. All the colors coming from that gray. Gray is a dim white, basically. Gray is a dim white. And white is all the colors, so it's neutral. So, so you know, it looks white. So anyway, admire the moon, but tonight when it's third quarter, you got to get up, you know, it comes up at midnight, okay? So anyway, hey, I hear that music coming. This, by the way, is the uh, music from Gustav Holst's The Planets. It's the Jupiter track, Jupiter, the bringer of jollity. Okay, well, everybody, have a great week, and stay tuned for next week. We have a wonderful interview with climate scientist and uh, advisor to the Pentagon, Will Travis. Thank you, everybody, Caroline, Tommy, Cade, and our guest, Marshall, and Eugene from emailing us from 40,000 feet or whatever. Keep an eye on the sky. Have a great week, folks. Bye-bye.